Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations in mental health treatment. Mind Medicine Australia is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness through expanding the treatment options that are available to medical practitioners and their patients. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast brings scientific researchers, practitioners, and those who have been personally affected by the healing powers of psychedelic-assisted therapies together to provide expert opinion, share research results, and to ultimately help educate the public on the immense potential of medicine-assisted therapies. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia by providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and now developing an Asia-Pacific center for emerging mental health therapies, and of course, supporting clinical research. If this is something you'd like to support or be involved with, you can join local chapter groups, you can donate directly to the website, which is mindmedicineaustralia.org, you can share this podcast or a friend or on social media, or you can just tune into this episode and help yourself understand this huge potential in mental health treatment. So check out the show notes for any of those links and thank you for your support and interest in this emerging space. In this episode, I sit down with Nigel Denning. Now he is a director and counseling psychologist at Integrative Psychology, which is a psychology and psychiatry practice in East Melbourne. He works with individuals, couples and families and he's a former family violence coordinator for Relationships Australia as well as the Deputy President of the In Good Faith Foundation. He has studied in the United States and Europe with Stanislav Grof, one of the founders of transpersonal psychology and holotropic breathwork. He has also helped build and deliver Mind Medicine Australia's Certificate in Psychedelic Assisted Therapies, or CPAT, which is commonly known, which has been developed primarily to meet the demand for trained therapists to provide regulatory-approved and researched-backed psychedelic-assisted therapies for the treatment of mental ill health. Now, psychedelics and psychotherapy are incredibly powerful tools, and the CPAT program was designed to help establish standards for safe, ethical, and effective practice in this field. This brings medical approaches, good psychotherapy standards, and transpersonal effects to our current model of treatment. So in this conversation I had with Nigel, we we certainly spoke about the CPAT program, what that looks like from the perspective of the clinician or the patient as well. We also chat about consciousness as a discussion in psychology. With the development of science and research, particularly over the past 10, 20 years, I mean, science has progressed so, so far in exploring the biological model of humans and and what's happening on a physiological level. And we're also now understanding brain waves and vibrations and different models of existence in many ways. And sometimes Western science is often putting a lens so closely on the biological model of reality or the 3D model of reality. And this has been incredibly helpful to understand our brain, understand our body, you know, what neurotransmitters are, what hormones are, how our brain communicates with itself and how we perceive things. And whether or not we'll ever get to the point where science can explain consciousness 
it needs to be part of the discussion in psychology and psychotherapy. And this conversation had a really nice balance between the sacred, but also the biological. So we explore the historical context of our brain and how our brain works and how it works to change our perception and change our state of consciousness. We chat about connection and love and meditation and how all of these things can be implemented and incorporated as part of psychedelic assisted treatment. So a really special conversation because this was a conversation that we could have in person. Nigel came down from Melbourne down to Torquay where I'm based and it was really nice to have that in-person chat and, and read each other's body language and have a really wholesome discussion of science and spirit and I hope you enjoy it. All right. Nigel, thanks so much for coming down to Torquay. Pleasure, Tommy. Yeah, it's a wonderful Sunday afternoon. We've got some sun out after a big downpour of rain yesterday, but we're enjoying the uh, the sunshine this afternoon. And I appreciate you coming all the way down to Torquay to, to record this episode. Beautiful to get out of the city. It is, yeah. I could imagine all the, the lockdowns that you've been through being in the cities. A vastly different experience than being down at the coast. Indeed. All right. Well, let's let's start with how do you describe what you do? Well, I'm a psychologist, psychotherapist. So um, that, that's that's what I do. I've been doing that for about 20 years, but uh, I'm also um, someone who's, who's done a lot of work in holotropic breath work. I've done a lot of work in um, meditation, yoga, done a lot of work in non-ordinary state medicine. Um, so I, I guess I come from a um, originally from a, a, a transpersonal orientation in, in psychology, which is really kind of a continuation of Carl Rogers' work, uh, Maslow's work, all, all kind of stemming from an extension of um, yeah, the, the, the humanistic kind of orientation to, to, to psychotherapy and just trying to, you know, see, see the possibility of consciousness as, as a part of the, the discussion when we think about psychology. Yeah, and I think what you alluded to there in regards to consciousness being a part of our mental health treatment, I think that's what seems to be lacking so much. We seem to be so focused on a biophysical aspect towards our mental health. The theory behind SSRIs was, you know, you have a lack of serotonin, so here's serotonin to boost your serotonin. But yeah. what we're finding is that it's a lot different to that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a... There's a bias at the moment in, in, in Western psychology where, where the pursuit is really negative state. So we're really looking at symptoms, negative symptoms, and we're trying to manage negative symptoms, control, repress, that kind of thing, which, which is all fine. I mean, you know, when, when you're trying to keep people alive, you don't want them to, you know, get lost in, in depression or anxiety. But what we fail to do is see the potential of growth. We, we fail to see opportunities to learn and develop. So, you know, one, one of the areas that I, I specialise in is is trauma work, trauma recovery, and, and, and one of the key aspects of anyone recovering from something like trauma, which is quite pervasive in our society in different forms, is something called um, post-traumatic growth, you know, the opportunity to learn and develop from restrictions in the past. And, and psychology doesn't do that terribly well at the moment. Um, huge opportunity. And we see something like life coaching comes in and kind of takes that space a bit where I think, you know, there, there's so much science around an optimally functioning human mind, brain, body, that um, we're really losing opportunity at the moment. In terms of 
the Western clinical approach, we seem to always gravitate towards it being like a scalpel approach. It's like, you know, type two diabetes, for example, you've got high blood sugar. Let's bring that back down as, as like a symptom symptomatology treatment. And I think that's the kind of approach we seem to be stuck in with mental health and it's obviously not working. And you, you mentioned trauma. I mean, trauma is a perfect example of how the, the lack of treatments that we have, it's something like 5% of people are, are recovering or, or getting remission from the treatments that we currently have with trauma. So, I mean, there's a huge gap that isn't being filled at the moment. You know, we've been looking at different ways and, and avenues to treat mental health, but we can't seem to get a grip on, on certain things. And we seem to go down the pharmacology pathway of, of what can we give someone to make them feel better, but yep. a vastly different approach is needed. And I think this is where that lifestyle medicine really comes in. And, and you know, when you first go into your GP, you've got 10 minutes to to describe and they've quickly tick a few boxes and say, okay, well, from what we've seen, you've got depression. So here, take this. And if that doesn't work, then try something else. And then you're kind of yeah. going down this thing and kind of building up evidence for yourself that, well, maybe I can't get better. So mm. how do you begin to, to tell someone that is, is struggling with such mental difficulty to, to keep hanging in there and, and being hopeful with the, the future of their mental health? Mm-hmm. I mean, Engels talked about the biopsychosocial model, you know, 30, 30 years ago. And it, and it kind of caught on for a while but sort of seems to have, have, have slid in our, our expectation. But, you know, we, we, we need to be thinking systemically. We need to be looking at, you know, the, the, the whole pattern of interaction that, that, that a person experiences in the world, where they come from, how they grow, how they develop, what kind of things impede optimal development. And that, that's really what we're talking about with trauma. We're talking about things that stop people fulfilling potential. You know, that, that's really what it is. So when, when you're then talking about treatment, what, what you have to do is identify the things that have, you know, caused that, that Im- impediment. So, yeah, you've got to identify the negatives, but then you've got to help them understand what the op- opportunities are and you've got to support that. And that's what you're talking about, you know, when, when you're thinking about a kind of a, a more holistic approach to, to health and, and well-being. It's, it's, it's looking at all the interactive effects, you know, the, just, just simple things like body posture. You know, if you're sitting slouched over, you know, and rounded shoulders all day, you're probably not going to feel very energised. Simple stuff, you know. If, if you're, you're living on a diet of sugar and, and alcohol, you're probably not going to feel so, so good about yourself, you know. So trying to understand the interaction effect of environment, interrelationship, um, on, on mental health. Well, I, I prefer the term mental well-being to mental health. It's, it, it, it sort of has, has a more positive orientation, I think. Looking at all of these different aspects of our of our life that are possibly going to impact the way that we feel mentally because, I mean, to diagnose mental illness, you have to feel negatively mental. But, of course, we need to take a few steps back and try and piece together, well, how did we come to this place first? I mean, when we're looking at something like depression and treatment-resistant depression where you've tried or or have thought to have tried everything and are still not progressing anywhere, where do you think the future of something like psychedelic-assisted therapy can integrate within that model? So psychedelic-assisted therapy is is just that. It's a a therapeutic approach that's assisting a psychedelic um, medicine. So the, the, the medicine itself operates as a circuit breaker. 
it operates as something that gives someone who's encased in one structure of being, and that, that structure of being will come about usually through a whole series of interactions. Some of them will be genetic, biological, others will be experiential and, and environmental. So, But that person has got to a point in their life where, where they're, they're stuck. And the interventions that, that, that are being applied don't seem to shift, don't seem to broaden or open that space. So when you prepare that person, you prepare them in the right way, and this is what we call set and setting. You, you get the orientation of mind looking towards possibility before you go into session. You, you create a session where they're supported, where they're, they're safe, where they're in a, you know, a, a kind of a, a nice environment, a, a, a calming environment, a beautiful environment, then you help them integrate on the other side. And by integration, it's really starting to see the changes, the different views, the different perspectives that come about when someone takes a, a psychedelic. It's what um, Cathart Harris calls as the um, default mode network. It's that kind of resting space of, you know, kind of neurological organisation that gets um, gets altered due to the medicine. And so people people have a different perspective. They have a different orientation. They have a different experience of themselves that isn't the depression anymore. And so what, what we then have to do in the therapy is help them ground that new experience, not as a function of the medicine itself, but as something that the medicine has opened up for them biologically, personally, existentially, as something different. And that's you know goes all the way back to Walter Pankey and um, the Good Friday exper- uh, experiments, the numinous experience of the numinous, the experience of something beyond, something greater, something different, is the thing that people recurrently come back to as a significant change factor in a medicine session or a series of medicine sessions. This this seeing something greater, something more connected, something broader. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier in terms of how a mental illness exists and in in a way it exists as like a, a negative or a rigid negative self-bias when you alluded to the default mode network in terms of the level of the brain. I guess this is as close as we can kind of get in terms of brain imaging as to where mental illness is birthed. We know that it's a rigid self-concept that is stuck and, and it feels like you're stuck in this constant loop, whether it's self-defeating thoughts or whether it's just not feeling like you have any purpose or, or things like that. And I think psychedelics, by, by definition, psyche being the mind or the soul and, and delic, the Greek word, which means to make clear or visible, mm-hmm. starts to make a lot of sense. It's because a healer can only heal a person as much as they can heal themselves. So maybe we could speak to that in terms of what is for the patient that is going that is undergoing the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy what is the clinician or the the facilitator meant to be doing during during the session itself? Are they guiding or are they trying to push the, the patient in a particular direction or, or what does that look like for them? Mm-hmm. Well, this is, a, this is quite a contentious area at the moment because there's, there's different approaches um, depending on which um, research program you're, you're looking at. And I think, you know, what, what I've been sort of most strongly influenced by is you know, the, the, the holotropic model, which comes out of you know, the, 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 the developments in Esalen, which itself was a function of the early phase of LSD psychotherapy, 
which has now been adopted into the MAPS protocols for PTSD work with with um, DM, uh, MDMA, and th- this is a this is a kind of a, a supportive tracking process, basically sometimes referred to as doing not doing, but um, I think that's a, a bit of a misnomer because it it really suggests that it's a very passive thing. But what we're really trying to do as therapists for someone in a medicine session is support them and to track and to be there to create and to add to the safety of the container and to allow for the potential possibility of emergent new experience, new phenomena, or the learning of how to how to embody the old phenomena. So what we don't want to be doing is imposing our view in any way. We don't want to be imposing an organised, structured model of what we think might be going on because I've, I've done so many thousand sessions in, in non-ordinary state work where you think someone's having an experience at an integration circle, you know, a day or hours later, they'll, they'll tell a story that's completely unrelated to what you thought was going on. So you really don't want to be imposing structures and views, but what you do want to be doing is helping people orient towards the potential of new possibility. So there's a little bit of set work involved in that. You're wanting to make sure that they don't get lost in anxieties and reactivities. So there's some safety and correction work in that. But it's really being being a safe container for those people and really just helping them. And so the, the, the skill is being able to self-regulate to the point of being able to track. It's what Dan Siegel, who I, I spent, a, spent a few years um, studying with um, a while back, he talks about presence, therapeutic presence as a, as a neurological kind of phenomenon, being being present to yourself and what, what what's functioning inside you and that's at the sensate level, what's your body doing, the affective level, what are your emotions doing, the memory level, what's this reminding me of and at the cognitive level, what am I thinking and being present as a therapist to that very complex interaction so that you can attune to the other and you can track what's going on in their body as a way of just just observing if if their if their body's doing something you observe you don't react if they're crying you don't react you just observe and if they ask for something you support so that's that's what we then call um, resonance so moving with so presence in the therapist attuning to the to, to, to the patient or the client and then resonating with their need rather than imposing your own on them. And that, that's, that's really, I think, at, at the heart of, of, of what um, the protocols are really trying to get to when they're talking about things like doing, not doing, and also, you know, some, some of the ones that are, that are more oriented towards leading. It's trying to, trying to get people the mindset towards growth. Yeah, wonderful. So I guess what we're alluding to is kind of the, the structure of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And I think a, a lot of confusion comes as to how this treatment differs from from pharmaceuticals. I mean, pharmaceuticals, you're thought to, you know, take it for the rest of your life and, and is helping you that way. But this is in a, a, a two or three month psychotherapy course for the patient and they will undergo two to three medicinal doses of, of psilocybin or, or MDMA yep. um, at the moment. For the patient, what you've described is they prepare and then they have the session and then they integrate. And so that'll happen two or three times throughout that, that psychotherapy course. Yep. After that, what we're obviously experiencing in terms of the statistics in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is that people are, are getting better, which is, which is really what we're after. We're not 
just about managing symptoms. We're wanting to get people better. Just to talk about within Mind Medicine Australia, we've now got the certificate in psychedelic assisted therapies. Mm-hmm. And so not every psychiatrist has obviously a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapy. So there is a, we need to be able to, to scale this to, to the wider community for mm-hmm. it to be accessed. So let's talk about the certificate in psychedelic assisted therapies for the clinician. So what is the core structure? What does that look like? And, and what is the intention behind it? Okay. Yeah, it, it's a it's a sixteen week training program, um, and and what we're really trying to do is 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 provide an overview to a, a therapeutic approach to psychedelics. So rather than following one of the singular protocols, so the the, the main protocols in operation at the moment are um, the MAPS protocols for MDMA for PTSD and the um, Imperial College protocols for psilocybin with treatment resistant depression. There are others and. Um, Yale University is also um, um, you know, kicking in with a, um, an approach to treatment-resistant depression um, using a form of acceptance commitment therapy. Um, so they're, they're, they're really the kind of the main models, but they're, they're all um, academic research-based treatment protocols. So what we're trying to do in, in the CPAT is, is look at uh, compare and contrast each of the protocols and just talk in more general terms about what orientation um, a clinician needs and what what they need to know about to to work through this process of preparation, preparation for session. So initially, at least um, you know a clinical clinical assessment to see who's you know suitable and who who's not. And there's certain indicators there that we we look to. Then preparation of the successful candidates for for a treatment program. Then the the medicine session. Then integration then another medicine session, then integration. So we're talking in general terms about, you know, what, what we do to, to set, um, set the conditions for, for the therapeutic um, session uh, or the medicine session and how to integrate that. Um, and that's really what we're trying to give um, clinicians an experience of. Because of the, 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 the legislative structures at the moment um, and we are kind of trying to, to get a, um, a healthy subjects trial running, um, Using using some medicines, but until we can get um, government author- uh, authorization for that, we use uh, holotropic breathwork as an analog state for non ordinary experience, and we we have two residential um, um, so workshops in the training where we give people an experience um, of both experiencing and supporting non ordinary state using this modality. Um, which has a lot of kind of analogs um, to to medicine work. It's not exactly identical, but there's 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 more overlap than, than difference. Yeah, and I mean it, it makes it very difficult to research and progress this field further when we're essentially working with illegal substances. Yeah, and so I guess that's what mind medicine and a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists are trying to do is, is to change legislation yeah. so that we can access these medicines yeah. through psychiatry so that psychiatrists can actually use this medicine as, as yeah. a viable treatment yeah. option. Yeah. Yeah. And so obviously as it stands within Australia, it's a schedule nine substance. So a substance that is high potential for abuse and high addiction potential and considered no medical uh, context to use for the substance. But what we're clearly finding is that, that doesn't line up with what we're seeing with this approach that's been researched across the world. So how can we 
get this out there or, or what steps do we need to take as an organization as, and as a country or as a state to make this accessible to patients that are, that are clearly suffering because the scale of the problem in Australia is, is horrendous and it's only getting worse and COVID has probably made that even, even worse with all the lockdowns and things like that. So we really do need more treatments and we need them soon. So what, what can people do on an individual level and, and what needs to be done at an organisational and government level? Well, I mean, the, the Mind Medicines um, and, and, and Peter Peter Hunt's put a lot of time into, into government lobbying and um, the Board of Mind Medicine um, in, in getting this, um, uh, well, most recently a, a, a TGA appro- appeal of their decision not to reschedule. So they're, they're certainly looking seriously Again, at, at rescheduling, um, we've got a, a number of applications in for um, special circumstance treatments and we've got trials that are starting to, to emerge all over the country. So it, it, it's really about, you know, kind of um, people having a political voice, people, you know, asking their, their local politicians, um, you know, responding to um, any um, requests from um, organisations for feedback. So really just, just making making the... Um, you know, m- making their interests known, we we certainly do do a lot to to publish research and to to forward incredible amount of burgeoning research around the world. Um, you know, there, there are trials springing up all the time, and, and and all of them are starting to to produce pretty positive outcome results. And certainly, um, um, the, the the kind of things that give us a lot of hope that there is a real kind of paradigm shift in. Um, in this kind of approach to medicine, where we're, we're, we're opening up possibility rather than dampening symptom, um, so it's really about you know kind of getting that word out. It's about getting enough people trained so that we we're educating professionals about this work, so that people coming into the CPAT course are really coming into to have an understanding of you know what what this work can be, what what the the limits of it are. Um, you know what what the, the the sequence of process around it needs to be what what we need to do to, to, to really do this work well and to do it in a, in a supportive way we, we provide an alumni for people that are coming through CPAT and are, are graduating so it's not a kind of you know you're trained and off you go it's you know we're, we're trying to build up a, a therapeutic community of um, people who are um, both open to this work and, and skilled in, in in utilizing this work so there's a lot of passion and interest and a lot of really good people out there. So it's really about now just, just constellating those people as a, as a, you know, a, a political force really. Um, the, the, the opportunities are too, too great. And, um, you know, that, that puts a huge ethical onus on us to do this work well, um, you know, to, to, to not allow the continuity of underground work um, where whilst, you know, there may well be some really good people out there working, we also do it without the scrutiny and observation of um, our peers often. So if we can bring this into, you know, clearly into the daylight, we can bring in, you know, the experience of people from previous generations, people that are doing this work in other parts of the world and, you know, good clinicians locally. It's, 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 a, it's a win-win for, for all of us if we do it properly. Yeah, certainly. And I think there, there is a bit of fear within the community of, this kind of going too quickly, but then that's also putting it back further that we we're so perfectionist towards creating the the perfect structure. But I mean, what we don't know about 
psychoactive or, or psychedelic compounds far exceeds what we do know because of the 30-year gap in the research that we had. So, I mean, we're still understanding what the, the biological basis is for this, but one thing is becoming certain is that their ability to treat a wide range of disorders and, and mood-related disorders can no longer be ignored. And so there is still a lot of stigma that is this carrying on even within certain psychologists and psychiatrist communities. Obviously, growing up, you see all the, the government propaganda, so there's still a lot to dig through there. And, you know, a lot of people like yourself and so many people of brilliant minds that are coming together to firstly destigmatize this and obviously educate people about what these these substances are all about because they're still even within the medical space have this image of what psychedelics are but i think what we what we're finding is that when we give that biological basis or neurobiological basis like from the work of uh, imperial college looking at the neuroimaging side of things and then looking at how that can be be used and, and treated across a wide range of mental health disorders and bringing that forward to um, this mental health space, I think is really helping that to go forward. The, the, the word you used before was fear and, and that's really the, the kind of core for this stuff. I mean, when, when fear is ever a determinant, you know, it, it's a function of the, the amygdala. It's a 300 million year old operating system that sits at the base of our brain and its and its and its main operation is to mobilize in you know a fight flight response or to immobilize in freeze response and that's that's what it does so nothing very logical emanates from a fear based response to anything um, but it's a very very prominent part of of our our biological reality at the point of evolution that we we've come to you know we're a we're a species that's really been you know we pulled on pants about 14,000 years ago and we've been trying to organise our brain for about 14,000 years on top of, you know, a million years of a prefrontal cortex, you know, 200 million years of a limbic brain and 300 million years of, a, of, a, of an amygdala. So we've got this incredibly powerful biological animal survival-based drive that operates us all. And so we're incredibly susceptible to fear-based anything. And because we're such a social species, we group together, so if an expert is fearful, if a group of experts are fearful, they'll constellate and people will constellate for no particular reason, which is you know, kind of what happened in the 60s. I mean, you know, obviously there were people that were you know, using this stuff unethically and irresponsibly, but the response to it was fear because people didn't know what was happening in terms of the organisation of mind. As a, as a, a science, psychology, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, chemists agree that there's a periodic table that they work from and that's what they're, they're, they're dealing with. Psychologists and psychiatrists don't really have an agreement on what a mind is. So when you start reorganising that and shifting and changing it and creating new phenomena and creating and, 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 and you know, extricating phenomena that we can't really explain, um, which is what you see so commonly when people go into non-ordinary state, people become fearful. Rather than, than, than really falling back on the science or the scientific method, which is to systematically observe, to, to study, to create hypotheses, you, you know, all this stuff, and then rather than taking that approach to it, what we do is we go into a fearful, fear-based and reactive response, shut it down. We don't get it. We don't understand it. It could be bad. could be terrible for us. And it, it, it means that things like, you know, 40 years of prohibition 
have robbed us of the opportunity of 40 years of scientific development. Now, yeah, we don't want to go willy-nilly and go, you know, this isn't a panacea for everything, but it is going to be another really powerful tool for us to to utilise in our um, therapeutic tool bag. And it's also going to start to point out different aspects of the human mind that has so far been the domain of religions. And so there, there are these incredible opportunities around consciousness to explore with, with this work. And it, and it presents something very, very different to mental health and, you know, dealing with symptoms. It creates this whole paradigm of exploration and possibility and what it is to, to have a mind, what it is to be a human. What, what is this, this, this brain that's kicking around in our skull? What's, it, what's its potential? What can it do? You know, and so how, how do we support it? And we get glimpses of that in medicine work. When, whenever someone has a, an experience of something beyond self, they're opening up to a new possibility of mind. So our, our job is to, to help that person make sense of it for themselves rather than kind of impose anything on it. And there, there's no fear in that. There's just exploration. It needs to be ethically done. So we need to have therapists and, and people working in this field who understand themselves and understand the nuanced quality of, of the suggestibility of people. Um, we need to have that. We need to have really good science around it so that we are not um, you know, shopping this as something that it's not. That we, 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 and, and, and the science and this stuff is pretty solid that, it, that it's working for people. I mean, to get something into Western treatment, you know, it seems to have to go through this clinical science approach. Um, and, and, you know, you need to have what's happening in the level of the brain, what's happening at the level of the body, and then having the scientific basis. And then, you know, once you've got that, then you can implement it in. But, you know, the way our body and this consciousness works is you can't simply reduce it to a biochemical necessarily. And so, I mean, what so many researchers are are working towards is solving this brain mind problem. Mm. Is that neural network a thought? It's hard to say. We know that when blood goes to certain parts of the brain, like the default mode network, that we experience a certain state of consciousness. So we can kind of have correlation and causation and trying to get a biological understanding of different states of consciousness and what that can can mean for, for the person. But this brain-mind problem is what's also fascinating about some of the research that's happening in, in the psychedelic space and when you look at that word psychedelic mind revealing it, it makes sense as to, as to why this tool is being used to, to understand consciousness better. For people who who have this psychedelic experience, um, what we've seen through Johns Hopkins is that they're, they're rating it as the, one of the most meaningful experiences mm. of their life. And I mean, Roland Griffiths, when he first reopened the research and did a trial in terms of the safety of, of psilocybin and found that this can be used incredibly safely mm-hmm. and with a higher chance that you can create a, a mystical or spiritual mm-hmm. type experience. And this is what you're talking about when you, you new possibility or new perspective that mm-hmm. people are lacking in that. And they're lacking in that rigid self concept mm-hmm. that is really hard to get out of. And to, to try and imagine this is, mm-hmm. is almost beyond mind. But, but, it, but it's such an important thing because it, it's, it's mind, mind is identified at the moment, with, particularly in the West, with autobiographical consciousness, which is you know, predominantly medial prefrontal consciousness. And that, that's the sort of an organisation of, of a bunch of memories and a bunch of emotions that are that, 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 that simply constellated in this, this kind of rigid structure. 
in anyone, and you know, I know your you, your work in sports and sports science. I mean, we, we understand flow state. We understand right dorsolateral function. We understand that people who are operating from a sense of awareness are operating in a greater sense of efficiency and responsivity than people operating from a sense of the autobiographical. And it's 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 simply an orientation of mind that's not possible when people are dominated by fear state. So what, what, what we're doing is we're opening up this, this, this gateway of possibility. It's simply showing us what our brains are capable of doing, feeding back to then to what our minds are, are possible are capable of doing, and we get this recursive system. And that's, you know, the, the, the basis of biological science, of physics, the, the idea of systemic feedback loops, the idea that, that there are recursive systems at work, this idea of linear causality which seems to still dominate psychological and psychiatric science where one thing creates the next thing, creates the next thing in a very, very linear sequential way, doesn't equate with the way that we understand the universe to operate, where things are feeding back into each other and that, that, that there are complex systems. So, you know, I can have a thought that I then feed back to myself to change the structure of my brain. If I, if I, if I you know, choose to do something... An act of will feeds back into who and what I am. It, it, it's 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 a simple process, and we, we everyone knows that it's not a, a linear process of something emanating from our brain simply causing a, a response from us. So, starting to understand mind, starting to understand, and, and and this is this is simply extending physical science and biological science into the science of the mind complex recursive systems so we need to understand when we're adding things complex things happen so when we're doing therapy from that space that's that's why we don't impose we don't impose will we create conditions we create conditions in which there's a limit to the amount of recursive feedback we add to that system trying to reframe itself laying on a couch in our office under the, the influence of psilocybin or mdma or lsd or ayahuasca or, or whatever else um, people will be, be choosing to use. Yeah, and it's it's this loss of self. You, you spoke about how that relates to flow and sports science. It's like when you're in that immense concentration or flow, it's the experience emerges with experience. It's it's a experience of of non self hmm. as these rigid self. But, but it's transcendent, Tommy. It's not you don't lose self and this is where the fear problem comes in because when when you'd start talking to people who haven't had the experience about losing self they go oh god <laughs> yeah then, then what will i be if, if there's no self you, you momentarily transcend self to return to self there's not there's not a getting away from or, or destroying self or, or or you know ending self what you're doing is you're expanding the possibility of self so self moves into another view sees something from a different perspective and then returns to self more clear and more, more reflective. You know, Tiger Woods isn't, you know, every day sort of you know, shooting down the, the, the fairway. Sometimes he's having lunch or, or dinner. And so returning to the state of just normal functioning, we all do that. So the, these processes are about ex- expanding and extending into our possibility in order to return with a broadened perspective, a broadened view. Yeah, and and certainly with the the sense of self, it's also at, at what level that is. It's how identified we are with the body, or whether the self means thoughts, or whether the self means our consciousness. So I guess there's there's different levels of that. But our essential self 
is is never really affected or or our consciousness is never wiped away we don't no. through these experiences it's not like you know you're you're not physically or or emotionally there um and i think that's where, where the fear comes in you think you, you're not actually going to be present in in some ways but it's, it's almost the opposite of that you're you're, yeah. you're more yeah. present and yeah. more aware of yeah. your body and your mind and and it, it reveals to you where the problem is which is why these these medicines are so helpful mm-hmm. we're getting into to philosophical space which i love because i am innately philosophical and these concepts of, of non-dual consciousness and the emergence of everything and everyone and, and feeling connected, which is what I believe is seems to be the problem in terms of losing connection to, to what is really important to us, mm-hmm. being stuck in that, that level of self that's thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so if we're so identified with the level of thought, mm-hmm. then it's hard to imagine or expand further and, and think there's, there's more than that, which is why people seem to get so stuck. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Bruce Perry's um, neurosequential model is, is is a nice way of kind of looking at the way that that you know self emerges from biology. Um, Mark Soames' work um, more recently, or, or um, um, Alan Shaw's great um, great book, Affective Regulation and the Development of Self, are all kind of ways of orienting our our, our understanding of how self emerges from biological process. So you know we start we all start as two heterozygote half cells which fuse and then differentiate into a complexity that that somewhere in the second trimester we start to identify something as a brain stem emerging and at birth we're, we're, we're born really being able to move toward or move away from 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 stimulus not much else you know where the the infant has to learn to 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 um learn reflexes has to learn to develop vision it has to learn to hear and to smell these things aren't fully online at birth and so these things occur biologically so sensate phenomena starts to form up in relationship because if that that infant isn't held and isn't connected to an adult these these features don't generally develop so we develop the sensate we then develop the affective so you know infants learn how to smile and laugh and you know yell and everything else again contained in relation to environment then they become symbolic and they they, they start to get a sense of mummy and daddy and they start to differentiate differences and so they start to develop a symbolic organization and then they're inducted into the world of language which then becomes dominant from about five years old onwards and so a suffering adult is 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 generally trapped in the world of language but that language is formed through the relationality of their body with others their emotions with others and their body and emotions with self with themselves how how do we they occupy their body so this this whole emergent biology comes through relationship and so the entrapment that people are experiencing in in, in their suffering is, is a developmental entrapment very often, you know, there are experiences, there are things that haven't happened for them or have happened to them that causes that, that collapse into suffering. And without a circuit breaker, without some way of getting out of that and seeing it differently, it, it becomes very, very hard to therapeutically lift people out of that. At times, some people respond really well to talk therapies and other types of conventional therapies, but other people, you know, they struggle. So there's this there's, there's, there's incredible kind of um, understanding we have of power of relationship mm. in in helping people to change mm. and i guess that having a lack of relationship or lack of connection to, to to loved ones kind of this concept of love 
Mm. And, you know, as, as we are birthed into this world, we feel love when we're with a family member or with a friend or with a dog. Mm -hmm. And so we build up this idea that we need them to experience love. And so if those things are taken away from us, our capacity to love can often deteriorate whatever experience you might encounter and love is seemingly taken away from you. Mm-hmm. It makes it very difficult to try and build that back up. But I think that it's, it's about, I mean, anytime you're with a, a family member or, or friend and you feel love, you're, you're creating that mm-hmm. you're, you're allowing yourself. And I think love is about being open and, and openness and, and consciousness. And I think this psychedelic experience that people have really links in with that concept of of feeling connection and love. Great, great point because that's that's part of the whole integration process of a psychedelic session is to help people link into that felt experience. So that that idea of relationship whilst, you know, we we, we grow developmentally in relation to others, human beings, again, with that that kind of whole kind of recursive looping, we we can change our attitude and our orientation toward ourselves and learn to love ourselves, experience love of ourselves. And that's a very common feature of psychedelic session. And that's something that the therapist needs to help to integrate, to help someone understand that 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 is in the domain of their control and their power to have positive feelings directed inwardly. That's a, that's a really important part of support and development of, um, of, of, of this therapeutic modality. Yeah, and, it, and if you want the, the clock back for and addictions, for example, you know, often if it could be a heroin addiction and it's like that, that person is trying to experience love in, in many ways, trying to, to search for something that will allow them to be open and to feel that love. The addiction treatment potential for, for psychedelics is huge as well and there's, there's been trials all throughout the world with that and I think that's yep. got, a, got a huge potential. And what people also seem to be doing after a psychedelic experience is, is that they report that their meditation lights up again or, or perhaps lights up for the first time. Mm-hmm. As part of this, this integration or even preparation, where does meditation kind of fit into this all and how does that relate and how does it kind of link in with the psychedelic experience. I know you've had some really interesting experience with Tibet style meditation. So perhaps allude to that and, and how that is, is interconnected with, with this type of therapy. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I um, practice a, a, a Tibetan style meditation called Zogchen, which is a, um, a concentration based meditation. So the goal of meditation from, from, um, these these sort of Tibetan perspectives is to to change the state of mind that we we typically operate from. So it's um, it's not to simply to become aware of what's happening. That's part of it, and that's that's a really good part of mindfulness technique. Um, it's not simply to regulate what's happening once we become aware of it, which is again a very important skill and a very useful skill to develop. But it's actually being able to concentrate the mind in such a way as to shift the the onus of operation. So you move from autobiographical state into non-dual state, you move from non-dual state into awakened state, and over over time um, the goal would be an enlightened state, which are really just different areas of domination in the brain. That's what it correlates to uh, at the biological level, but it also creates different experiences of consciousness. So when we're um, 
focused on a concentration meditation where we're, we're no longer focused on the object. We, we see the object as just a, 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 an energetic movement. We see ourselves as part of an interconnected flow. We see, you know, the trees outside and the windows as, as connected to us in some way. We see the people close to us as part of something broader and greater. We come back to ourselves, of course, you know, it's, it's not about, again, it's not about giving away self, but it's starting to, to move more, more from dominance of the amygdala, from dominance of the medial prefrontal, into the view from the, the, the right dorsolateral. So we're starting to move into an awareness-based stage of, of development. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's about seeing the world somewhat differently. And it, it's really when, when people are having profound psychedelic experiences, what they're really doing is, is getting a, a glimpse a glimpse of higher organisation of mind or, or broader organisation. I don't like hierarchical thinking. So it's, 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 it's a different but broader perspective, a little bit like you imagine, you know, the, the, the view from the mountain, you know, what, what you see at the base of the mountain are the trees and the, you know, the rocks and then you get a little way up the mountain and you start to see above the trees. You get halfway up the mountain and you see the valleys and then you get to the top of the mountain and you just see a much broader um, you know, landscape around you and that that's really what, what what meditation is it's about it's about a view it's about a perspective that you have of how you're existing in the world and i think in in psychedelic work it, it allows people to get glimpses of that and not everyone wants to stabilize it's not a requisite for people's lives to, to to pursue awakened awareness but um it's certainly something that interests a lot of people and it's certainly you know, a way of seeing the world that, that that's 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 very difficult to return to brutality when you see yourselves as interconnected and embedded with something broader. And I think that that's a common experience of people that, that do psychedelic work is getting a sense of the interconnectedness with, with self, with other, with their environment, with, you know, the, the, the world in which we inhabit. So I think there's, there's, there's incredible crossover between meditative practice and psychedelic work. Um, and I think there's, you know, we, we, we have to be careful about using a clinical practice as a spiritual tool um, and, and we really need to, you know, make sure that we're, we're understanding and our boundaries are very, very defined so that we're not confusing spiritual processes with, with psychotherapeutic processes. But that's all part of the problem in, in, in Western, Western psychology where we don't think of progressive developmental stages in our adult life. Most psychology in the West tends to, to follow Piaget up until late adolescence, early adulthood, and then it's sort of like, oh, off you go, <laughs> you're an adult now. Whereas most of the meditative traditions around the world will see other stages of development that occur in adult life. And I guess that's where, you know, Western science would be usefully um, using some of its um, its muscle in trying to understand what, what these um, these traditions are talking about in terms of, of, of um, development. I, I know one of, one of my mentors um, at Harvard Med, um, Dan Brown's published um, on um, the, the, the role of the gamma, gamma wave in um, meditators, different parts of the brain. There's a lot of work coming out of, I think Imperial College has been doing a, a fair bit of work in, in brain imaging of um, Zogchen, um, uh, teachers from, from Tibet. And what we're seeing is stabilisation of organisation of mind and brain 
in ways that we see emergent when people are taking psychedelics. So psychedelics open the window, they create something different, different organisational perspective, meditations and other practices, it's not just meditations, but other practices that people can do can stabilise and they, they, they stabilise a state change into a stage of development and those stages of development tend to orient more and more towards positive phenomena. People start to see, as I said, interconnection. Um, you were talking about love, which is really kind of a sense of connectedness. You know, it's a connect, sense of expansiveness or, or emergence. Yeah? So the, these positive states tend to be the consequence of any um, stage-based developmental process uh, in adult life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we can call it love, we can call it connection, we can call it God. And, mm. you know, language is a, a wonderful and brilliant tool, but it's always a reductionist tool yeah. as well. It's always yeah. the pointer. Yeah. And so often exactly. we're focused on the finger that's pointing instead of yeah. what the finger is pointing yeah. to. Yeah. And yeah, this well, feeling. What's of, pointing the finger? Well, yeah, <laughs> depends how far you want to go, go back into it. But yeah, meditation is helping people to understand the entire landscape of our experience, giving power to your awareness of having the ability to change your state at will. Mm-hmm. So if you're stuck in this state, or, or giving power to yourself to know that there are other states of mind that can be accessed. And it's not to say you want to avoid certain states because obviously there are states that are very useful for us, but when they become debilitating, mm. then they become an issue. Mm. And if we feel that we're yeah. stuck there and don't have that meditative practice or all that power to to know how to change our state and change to sensing external things yeah. and, and moving your awareness to different parts of the body or the mind really gives power to people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jacques, Jacques Punksepp, who is one of the pioneers of, of, of active, affective neuroscience, um, he, he talks about seven, seven um, limbic neural circuits, um, rage, lust, fear, loss, grief, play, nurturance and seeking as, you know, fundamental to all, all, all animals. And, um, you know, they're, they're, in humans we, we have exactly the same limbic structures as a, a mouse or your, your pet dog or whatever. So our, our brains are, are, are no different. So being able to discriminate and understand the role of affect in, in, in your daily operation, it becomes an incredibly important tool, just being able to observe it because then and, and we, we, we have a natural biological tendency towards negative affective states because it's part of our evolutionary history you know you don't want to be spending too much time sniffing the tulips when the saber tooth's after you so you know we're, we're more survival oriented than we are you know thrival oriented if um, you want to take martin seligman's um, term so we, we, we we're really learning to pick and to understand these affective states these sensate states these memory states in order to discriminate and choose and that's really what we're talking about in any kind of therapy we're talking about in, in any kind of meditative um process any psychedelic process we're trying to give people enough discriminatory awareness to choose the states of mind they occupy rather than to recede into the ones that they've adapted to for a combination of reasons biological and biographical there's also so much to be said about suffering too and where that births in the first place and instead of just thinking that you want to avoid that state of being, it's the, the things that hurt instruct. And so if we're having these repetitive thoughts, it's like, well, well, what's that coming from? And then understanding, well, is it my health? What am I doing on a daily basis? Am I involved in meaningful work? Where do I fit into life? 
giving power to that to, to help understand where these things are birthed hmm. gives you the access to be able to change them. And that's so I think that's yeah. what yeah. psychedelic therapy is yeah. really all yeah. about. Yeah. And and you're orienting people to 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 that inward view. So, you know, you don't you don't see too many bunny rabbits, you know, reading reading um poetry or or, or Zen meditating or anything. They're they're scanning all the time. They're scanning their environment for threat and safety and, and protection. And we're no different. You know, we, we're, we're biologically programmed to look outside of ourselves for, for problem, you know, for threat. And so if we've had those kind of threats developmentally, if, if, if they seem to be the predominant experience of our existence, if suffering is the thing that, that orients us the most, we're naturally going to orient outside, we're going to look away from ourselves and we're going to get into a position of avoidance of, of whatever's happening internally as, as a kind of a natural way of being. And it's, it's kind of logical so part of what we have to do in therapy is, is help people look towards the unspeakable. That's exactly what MDMA therapy is doing for PTSD is, is down-regulating the activity of fear in order for people to approach memory in a different way and to reorganise and reorder memory. So you know, and, and, and psilocybin will be doing something quite similar, allowing people the experience of approach and then to have on the other side during the process of integration a different biographical experience of the phenomena. They have a caring, supportive, non-intrusive thera- therapeutic dyad, usually a man and a woman uh, when possible, there to support them and to give them a different experience of reorganising themselves where looking inwards is, is supported, where looking inwards is, is okay. That helps them to develop awareness and discrimination. This fear that is coming up and stress being a huge part of, of mental health and chronic stress being a big part of mental health is that we can't seem to be able to regulate when this fear centre is turning off and turning on and turning off and turning on and how that relates to trauma. If we have the, the physical experience and that's stored in, in the hippocampuses where we're aware, but then the emotional memory is stored elsewhere, what MDMA-assisted psychotherapy gives access to the patient is that they can look at the trauma in such a different way and not have that emotional baggage that they've been tied down to for so long and actually while we're somewhat on the topic of of meditation actually have you heard of vipassana yeah yeah so i did a vipassana a couple of years ago and it was under the 10-day silent retreats and it was a bit of everything. Like I had experienced every state of mind that I could have possibly done and I wasn't doing anything. Yep. So then what that told me was like, well, I'm creating these experiences and it gives power to you to, to help wind the clock back and go, well, why are those things yep. coming in? And I think yep. so many people feel so stuck yeah. Um, yeah. in their patterns of thinking. Yeah. yeah. Vipassana um, meditations um, sometimes referred to as the first turning of the wheel because it's a the style of meditation that, that's historically most closely linked to the Buddha. Um, and that's interestingly the style of meditation that's sort of entered into Western psychology first um, as mindfulness practice. Um, the, the, the second turning of the wheel is, is, is the so the, Theravadan is, is sometimes referred to as Hinayana. Then, then the second turning is, is Mahayana, which is where we enter into ma- uh, concentration practice and emptiness practice, uh, emptiness of self, emptiness of thought, emptiness of um, time, emptiness of place. And then the third turning is the Vajrayana, which is, you know, a, a whole sort of kind of complex um, um, ways of, of utilising mind in order to kind of create, create effect and experience the, the second turning of the wheel is also um, commonly known as the, the, the bodhisattva 
kind of period. So it it it, it brings a different type of responsibility to meditation because it, 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 with the the Theravadan, it's the the adept can cross into awareness. In in the Mahayana, everyone needs to cross into awareness. So they they're, they're just kind of different historical um, orientations to to what are incredibly powerful tools. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So coming back to, to CPAT, because you've obviously helped, helped design CPAT. Who, who've, who's been involved in, in the design of, of that? So um, my, my um, business partner, Trail, uh, Dr. Trail Dowie, um, and I were, uh, were invited in towards the end of last year. Um, and so we, we've sort of spent about the last, well, we've been involved in the last 10 months or so in designing CPAT, CPAT 1, uh, running CPAT one, and now um, we're in a process of continuous improvement, um, save for COVID, which has um, really hit with the CPAT two, and trying to get get our residential um, programs in place. But we've we've been developing the program um, for, for the last twelve months, and we've we've drawn on our, our cumulative sixty years of experience in um, this kind of work, and. Um, uh, Tanya De Jong and, and, and Peter Hunt have brought together a, a really good faculty of international um, teachers. So we've, we've got a kind of combination of um, you know, the, the best of the best of people kind of teaching into it and then we are also ourselves teaching into it and providing the, the kind of experiential structures. Yeah, And who can apply for a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapy? Is it psychologists, psychiatrists? Is there... Yeah, yeah, we've we've, we've got we've got sort of four levels of 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 people that that um, um, we're training. So, firstly, we've got people that have prescription rights. So these are people with medical training. Um, so we have psychiatrists, GPs, and other other um, medical professionals coming into the training. Then we have lead therapists. Now they could be people with prescription rights, such as psychiatrists, or they are psychologists counsellors, psychotherapists um, that have advanced standing in the profession. So um, they've got several years of, of experience in the field. And then we've got a third third tier, which are allied health professionals or students who are able to provide support in, in medicine sessions and we're, we're training them in, in the manner to provide support. Um, and as, as their, their training and experience grows, they can move into principal therapist roles um, or if they're, if they're studying medical degrees into prescribing roles. Yeah, awesome. I think we've covered quite a lot of different topics throughout this conversation. We've, we've gone through holotropic breathwork. We've talked about what uh, psychedelic therapy looks like for the clinician, what it looks like for the patient, the core structure, what psychedelic assisted psychotherapy looks like. Spoken about meditation, we got into a concepts of, of love and and all of these wonderful things. Now, is there anything else you would like to add before we close this one out? Um, no, I, I think just really, um, it's it's about the the historical moment that we're we're in at the moment and the opportunity that that, that we have in this work to really shift the paradigm into into something that's growth-based, that, that we really have an opportunity to look at where we are as a species on a planet that is really struggling with our, our presence on it at the moment. And we, we, we've got an opportunity and, and, and we're struggling. 
in this planet. You know, we've got we've got rates of depression and anxiety and and and, and, and mental illness that 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 are just extraordinary. Um, so we've we've got this opportunity here to really develop a tool. Stan Stan Groff um, would famously say that. Um, uh, LSD is to mental health what what the microscope was to to chemistry. Um, you know, it, it, it's a or to biology, I should say. It, it, it's just an extraordinary opportunity that we have to start to really explore and understand who we are, what we are, how how we operate together, and how to improve that for the sake of all of us. Yeah, certainly. And. The Earth, as as it looks like from from human intervention, is really struggling as as an entire organism, and that's the kind of approach that we need to look at. We need to prove the suffering or, or decrease the suffering, I should say, of of humans, and then what will come of that is, I'm sure, a more beautiful and luscious and connected world that a lot of us uh, are envisioning. That everyone is feeling connected and understands love and uh, appreciates each other because. I mean, as our survival systems became complex and more sophisticated, we just seem to be reacting and constantly on, on a daily basis. We go to work and, you know, it's it's all go, go, go. It's very yang. It's very high energy. It's, it's, it's very adrenal cortical. It's very, very limbic. It's very, very uh, amygdala. It, it, it's reactive. It's not thoughtful. It's not reflective. So you can build approaches, therapeutic approaches into helping people optimise their functioning, down-regulate their reactivity. You know, stress stress is a function of adrenaline and cortisol. So we, what, we're, what we're trying to think about is how, how do we help support people to optimise? How, how do we really you know, create therapies that, that, that actually work to develop? This is what positive psychology is offering. Um, and this is what's, what psychedelic psychotherapy is offering, it's what meditation is offering, are opportunities for us to, to evolve. You know, to, and, you know when, when, when people take a really deep commitment to that, what they move into is, is a way of seeing things as interconnected. We, we, we move out of the, the, the adrenal cortical orientation and we move into dopaminergic serotonergic orientation, which is seeking and connection. They're biologically based, but they're also experienced as profound human states. We are an in- incredible species and it's just to be a human is mind-boggling in itself and to then try and navigate yourself through this human life and reacting to all these different things, you can start to understand why the the system that we've built on Earth as humans doesn't work for us. You know, we need to look at, at looking yeah. at things very differently. We're operating in a system that, that, that's still not, not changed that much from, from feudal Europe or feudal Asia. You know, we're power and control. We're, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's dominated by a certain type of male. An alpha male is, is, is often the, the dominant feature of any social organisation. We, we, we have power over groups we we compete for resources um it, 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 it's 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 very very similar to a, to a feudal structure and that that's how people are operating it's unnecessary now mm. you know we, we, we create the, these these conflicts from from the projections of our own fears yeah absolutely Nigel, thank you so much for for coming down and it's wonderful to to come down here I really really appreciate your time and 
I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And if people are wanting to reach out to you, is there anywhere you can direct them? Sure. Um, uh, through um, either through Mind Medicine Australia or through my, uh, my practice at Integrative Psychology in East Melbourne. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Good Appreciate you. your time. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and enthusiasm in mental health and psychedelic therapy. If you have enjoyed this episode, which I hope that you have because you've made it all the way to the end, share it with a friend, share it on social media. But the best thing you can do is actually leave a review on whichever podcast platform you're on. I know Apple Podcasts allows you to leave a five-star review and you can leave a rating. So that's one way and probably the best way to help expose and share this information to the podcasting world and and to your friends and peers. And finally, the information in this episode was provided for informational purposes only and was not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, we did it. Once again, thank you so much, and I'll see you here for the next one.